Sumner program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, folks. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom, how are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is uh, the Tom Sumner program. My, uh, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour, my guest this hour has authored over 30 published short stories and two award-winning young adult novels. And um, her latest book is uh, a uh, young adult historical fantasy that tells the story of a young Mexican girl whose country is in turmoil. The book is called uh, Plague of Flies, Revolt of the Spirits, 1846, by Laurel Ann Hill, who joins me by phone. Hi, Laurel. Welcome to the show. Oh, hello, Tom. It's great to be here. How are things in Flint? Things are good. They warmed up a little today. It's been chilly for a couple of days, a little bit of snow on the ground, but uh, we're doing okay. Okay. I got to ask you, Laurel, um, I'm such a fan of historic novels um but historical fantasy how much of this book is history and how much is fantasy the setting is history the bear flag rebellion happened um the the theft of a big chunk of mexico's real estate by the united states happened the genocide of the native americans as a result happened I've got real characters, characters who really lived in the book, um, as they're not major characters, but they're minor characters, or they're mentioned, uh, such as um, Fremont and Kit Carson and um, John Augustus Sutter, uh, all all people who would be known, uh, at least by... uh, People of my generation in California, I don't know what they (laughs) teach for history these days. But in all of this setting with the, in 1846, with the the ranchos and the rancheros and the piqueros, that things, this was all stuff that happened, it really happened. And so I've just put a fictional family in there. And I have uh, made things happen that are along the lines of magical realism, that they believe in things spiritually and they accept things that happen because of it, and but it falls into the realm of fantasy. Um, this is a fictional family, but how much of it is based on some of your own ancestors from that region and that time? 
Well, my ancestors were still in Mexico in 1846. My great-grandmother was born probably in 1847 in in Mexico. And uh, my family didn't move up to what we know as California until the late 1850s or early 1860s. Mm. However, um, I did use things that I had learned about my family and their relations and um, their spirituality from my um, great-grandmother's scrapbook in the California Historical Society when I discovered it. I initially started writing uh, Plague of Flies when I did not know much about my Mexican ancestors. And uh, I knew very little about the heritage. And then I found, and, and I thought that they had probably been up here in the um, the rancho time in the you know 1840s because I did hear through the family gossip that my great great grandmother had lost um, her wealth in California because she'd been cheated out of it. Uh, we didn't know who did it. They uh, thought that it might have been the railroads. Nobody knew for sure. And so I just thought, well, it was probably back in the, the time of the ranchos. So I was wrong about that, which I learned when I uh, got her scrapbook and had it translated from Spanish into English but by that time, all the characters in the story were alive inside of my head, and they wanted their stories told. So <laughs> I have to wait till my next novel in order to to tell um, stories more associated with uh, a widow and her children um, moving from Mexico up to the United States in the 1860s. What attract? What what drew you to that time period initially? Well. It's a great time period to write about. I mean, horrible things happen, but it is it is different than now. And I did not want the complexity of today to interfere with the story of the people. I wanted yesterday. You know, I grew up in a three-generation household with my um, grand, my maternal grandparents and my parents and um, you know, my sister and brother. And we were poor in San Francisco, and I really felt more attached to the previous century than I did to the current one as a child because I heard all of my grandparents' stories. And I um, and my, my grandmother baked bread. You know, I was the only kid in class who went to school with homemade bread which made me something of an anomaly. <laughs> but I really, um, I, I just was fascinated with uh, sewing and cooking and uh, the, the women's skills and the power that women have, even if they're poor and have no political influence, even if there's a problem with the men in the household. My father was an alcoholic, but... I, I was just attracted to that, and I want to set my this story back in the past. I just felt more comfortable. 
You know, there was a time when when I was growing up, uh, and and my family traveled in the in the Southwest um, back in well, it would have been the mid '60s, early '60s maybe, and it seemed that there was such a blend of cultures between um, Mexican Americans, indigenous people and the Europeans. And and it just seemed like it was so well blended. And then in the last couple of decades, it, it has changed so dramatically. Living in that region, do you have any sense for how it, it became well, so plenty, divisive? There was plenty of prejudice back then. I mean, the... Uh, the bear flaggers or the you know the people that revolted against mexico they you know it was a, a real estate steal and they did not think all that much of most mexicans and they literally ended up by confiscating the the property of people um families like the Vallejos, uh, ended up with with little um, the uh, Berryessa family. They murdered people there. Uh, they, you know, the genocide that was completed between the time the U.S. took over and the about the 1880s, the Native American population, which had already been decreased by the Spaniards had gone down, gone from 150,000 down to 17,000. And they literally would just go and kill people. Over the entire continent or in that, that oh, region? Oh, in California. Okay, all right. Yeah, in California. Um, and there's an excellent book out, uh, American Genocide, that by Benjamin Madley. That details all of that. It 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 just came out maybe about five or six years ago. See, as a tourist in that region, you know, at, at least in what I imagine the fifties and sixties to have been like, it it seemed like all of that had had faded into the background, and then all of a sudden, it seems like in in recent years. It's become very divisive again, and and maybe it just looked that way to me. It, it looked that way to you, and in a way, it looked that way to me where I was because um, the position I was in, which was more poverty than anything else, um, I I had lots of friends of all nationalities. And the schools I went to, my high school was very well integrated. Um, my middle school, which we used to call junior high school, was integrated. And I didn't think a lot about these things because I I knew so many different people. And it just never occurred to me. And then I, my eyes started to open to see what was really going on around and I realized that there were problems long before it became a really divisive situation in the U.S. 
that Lord. people have always had problems, and it's just that people has, have not always had Twitter and YouTube and <laughs> Facebook right, and right. Yahoo. Hey, Laurel, when I introduced you, I talked about some of your award-winning writing, but I kind of glossed over the fact that you are a former underground storage tank operator. What, what is an underground storage tank? Well, just what it says. I worry about underground storage tanks. Listen, uh, you have to remember, when you go to the gas station, the gas isn't stored above ground. It's too flammable. They put it underground. It's less of a hazard. I worked for a research and development site, pharmaceutical research and development, for a company owned by uh, Shearing in uh, Germany, Shearing AG in Germany. And so we had underground storage tanks for diesel fuel in order to power our emergency generators so that when the power went out, and it often did, that we would not lose our cell banks or any of the other uh, materials that, that had to be refrigerated or kept at a, you know, a, a standard temperature. So uh, that's how we had got the fuel, underground tanks. Well, how did well, you get into that line of work, and then, and then how did you end up being a writer? Okay, well, it started out I was a writer first. I, I started writing or making up stories before I could read. My sister would write them down. She was four years older than me. And then I would decorate them with pictures I cut out from magazines and comic books. When I was 11, I had my first short story published. It was horrible. <laughs> it was in the children's section of the San Francisco News which at the time was one of the major newspapers in San Francisco, which had many of them. And so uh, I sent in my little story, Nancy Saves the Day, and I got published. And I was delighted, of course, that <laughs> the story was really horrible when I read back and read it years later. It was probably the only one submitted to the, the column that, <laughs> that week. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, I, uh, being from a, a poor family, I wanted to go to college, but there was no money for that. So in high school, I entered mostly essay contests, but some short story contests, and I kept winning them. And they were for students, and I won enough prize money to pay for four years of college tuition and books at San Francisco State. And in addition, I got all kinds of other things. I got shares of stock. I got a bull of a watch. I got one of those big hi-fi sets that uh, people had in the, the 1950s. And uh, I, I, I just kept on winning. I was written up in the paper. I was on television. The Look. girl who keeps winning. Laurel, I hate to I hate to interrupt. I want to pick up this story and talk some more, but I have a break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes? 
Oh, sure, I'll do that. All right, my guest is Laurel Ann Hill. We're going to take a short break, let our broadcast partner squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. We'll be right back. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Bye from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Jonah Bodie. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yellow. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. 
But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue with my conversation with the author of uh, a uh, new book. Well, I think it came out uh, toward the end of last year, October of 2021, if I'm not not mistaken. But um, it is called Plague of Flies, Revolt of the Spirits, 1846. The author is uh, Laurel Ann Hill, who joins me by phone. Laurel, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, I was just relaxing. Um, just before the break, we were talking about how you got started writing and, and that you spent time as a, uh underground storage tank operator. Um, have you been able to... Um, are you in a position now where you can write full-time? Um, well, to tell the truth, since I've retired, my life is busier than it was when I was working because as we age, (laughs) it takes us longer to do everything. Is that what it is? Because I've heard people say that before, that they didn't know how they had, before they retired, they didn't know how they had time to work. But I am uh, slowly working on my next novel. I don't even have a working title for it yet, but it is set in California in the 1860s. You know, your your books tend to be drawn to that, that time period, and, and you like to write about things in that, that region. Um, are they all standalone books, or is there any kind of a series component to them? Oh, they're all standalone. I have a line of characters in my head waiting to be written about. And so I wouldn't dare do a series. Well, what? You haven't going to tell my story? <laughs> <laughs> well, One time when my husband was still alive, he passed five years ago. I'm sorry. Uh, you know how authors, their characters in their head, keep them awake at night sometimes? He woke up one night in the middle of the night when I was awake, and he said, now your characters are keeping me awake. Oh, that's funny. I, You know, I ask writers this uh, quite often, wondering if you come up with the characters first and then come up with stories and things that would happen to them, or if you come up with the story first and then cast it with with characters well, for me, I usually have a character that is giving me an idea. I, I kind of have an idea, and then I kind of get to know a character, and then the story starts to evolve. I'm really connected with the character by the time the story is coming out. And as you're writing the story, Laurel, do, do you... Um have an outline going into it, or does it, um, I, I guess I would use the phrase, does it almost write itself? 
it doesn't write itself. Oh, if it only did. <laughs> no, I wouldn't like it then because I enjoy the process of of writing as difficult as it may sometimes be for me. Uh, it does not write itself. I do not outline. And that's why it takes me so long to write a novel. I've only written three novels. And I've, you know, written maybe, I guess about 40 short stories, and over 30 have been published. I stopped counting at 30. Is it a lot tougher to write a full-length novel than a short story? For me, yes. I mean, just the length alone and the fact that your plot is more complex and you often have more than one point-of-view character and that you often have, um, even if you only have one point-of-view character, you have more major characters and you've got subplots and all these other things going on. And you've got to get more material into it and make everything consistent and make it all weave together, along with having your story arc. When you're writing the first draft of a story, and and do you do you just write it straight out and then go back and make corrections, or or do you pick it apart along the way? Oh, I pick it apart along the way. When you are doing a piece of crochet work, if I was crocheting a dish rag, and yes, I used to crochet my own dish rags. <laughs> If if I came and if I made an error, I fixed it then, or else the whole thing would come out weird. Yeah, but it, it's with writing. Some some people, some writers have told me that that they just they just spit it all out, and then they go yeah. through and and tweak and fine tune and and rewrite and reorganize. You know, after. Um, after they get the whole thing out there. And and yeah, I just wondered yeah. if you, it sounds like you have a very different process. Yeah, I have a different approach. You have to remember I was trained to be a scientist. <laughs> so when I go about stuff and I know that I've made an error, I don't say, well, I'm going to finish this experiment anyway and see what happens, even if it blows up. No, I go back. <laughs> if I'm aware of something, I go back. And I fix it because it bothers me until I go and fix it. Do the stories and the characters in them that you create, do they ever surprise you or take you by surprise and go in a direction you didn't realize it was going to go? Oh, yes. Yes. And sometimes you have to have a good talk with your main character. Because they want to do something that you didn't really want done. And the minor characters can be the worst, because a minor character can want to take over. And you can be so attracted to them that they might shine more than your main character does, and you don't want that. <laughs> and so one of the, the things to combat it, if you see that happening you give your main character something more important to do so that they are not subservient to a minor character. 
are you a very visual writer or or is it um, much more about the interaction between people and dialogue and that sort of thing? Well, I think it's a combination of both because I envision things happening and yet it cuz I I have to know what people are doing before I can really perfect the dialogue and how it's going to get broken up. Now, I can write and I have written long passages of dialogue, uh an entire chapter of dialogue in certain circumstances and then went back and introduced what they were doing when they this dialogue was occurring. But it doesn't really come out as well as if I start with everything, you know, the the, the scenery around them, um, what's going on, what people are thinking, and then I it, it comes out better. So if I start with just dialogue, I have to go through a lot more work than if I just started with, um, you know, everything all at once thrown into the mix. You write primarily for young adult readers. Um, what what attracts you to, to them? What, what is it about your writing that you think uh, that appeals to them, and, and what is it about having them as readers that appeals to you? Well, it was all by accident. My short stories were not written for young adults. And so when I I started writing a novel, um, it just came out that it appealed to young adults. My first book that was published was not the first book I started writing. And so when it was entered in a, a contest by the publisher, one of the honorable mentions that it got, it got a, a bronze award in um, science fiction, I think. And then it got a honorable mention in young adult. And I said, how could that be a young adult story? My uh, character is an adult crayon from this other world, and he's eight foot tall, and he's got lizard-like skin, and he's got four <laughs> arms, and two of them have claws. How could this be young adult? But it was, because there was, his, he had like a sidekick who was a human who was only five feet tall, and they, they went off and accomplished things together. And so I never intended it to be young adult. I never intended my second book, The Engine Woman's Light, to be young adult. It turned out that way. I thought, oh, there's way too much profanity. Oh, there's way too much sex in this. That's not young adult. But Kirkus Reviews um, gave it um, an, an award, so to speak. Uh, they have the the list of top indie books. And in, two, let's see, 2017, The Engine Woman's Light was listed in the top six indie young adult books by Kirkus. Wow. 
And so I thought, well, I guess I write young adult when I write a long story. So I'm going to make the next one young adult. <laughs> well, writing is is kind of a solitary um, endeavor. Do you get a chance? Um, I, I know it's been tough during the, the last couple of years because of the pandemic and quarantines and so on, but do you get a chance to interact with, with readers or get feedback, and, and do you enjoy that part of it? I, I really enjoyed it when I was going out to the science fiction and fantasy um, cons, conventions. And, of course, now there's very little of that except virtually. But I'm still doing it, and I will be getting out and going again as soon as it's possible. Uh, I I miss that. Um, I try and interact with people the best I can, but it's not the same. So in in the past several months, I've had a publicist help me. Um, Black Chateau, and they're absolutely wonderful. If anybody out there is looking for uh, a publicist that is for real and not a scam and affordable. Yeah, that's the important part <laughs> is affordability. I mean, it all costs money. Of course. But you have to decide, are you going to spend the money or are you not going to spend the money and nobody's ever going to read your book except your family? So you have to you have to get out and do what you can. When you get feedback from readers, um, does it ever inform your future writing? Um, well, it it kind of either lets me know that um, either I'm on the money, I may be off the money on certain things. But to tell the truth, I write the story that's in my heart. And there are things in my stories that other people might not agree with. And I'm not going to change my style or um, my vision or the types of characters that I have because it upsets someone. I write for me. And if somebody likes it, that's great. If it changes the viewpoint in life of one single reader, I've succeeded. Were you able to get a lot of writing done during uh, uh, the various shutdowns and quarantines of, of the last couple of years because of the pandemic? Well, well, you know what I've been, well, of course, I was working on to get, you know, with my publisher to get Plague of Flies out. I also am a member of the California Writers Club, San Francisco Peninsula Branch, and I've been uh, the editor of their Fault Zone anthology. And so during the last couple of years, I have worked on that project as well. I have nothing that I've written in there except the introduction, but I worked with the authors to get their stories publishable. So uh, that was a tremendous, uh, I mean, that thing took as long as if I'd started writing it from scratch. (laughs) <laughs> because you have to get into the minds of the other authors as to what they felt and what they envisioned and is it on the page. Because you don't always see it in your own work. Now, this uh, this book that just came out, um, 
and I turn the page and um, Plague of Flies, Revolt of the Spirits, 1846. That's your third novel, and you said you were working on a fourth novel. Do you have any sense, Laurel, for for how long it might take um, for you to to finish that book and before we might see that book? Well, it better take less time than the last two because I'll be dead. <laughs> the well, um, once I once I get started, and um, and that probably won't be for another couple of months. Then it, I don't expect it to take fifteen or twenty years. The Engine Woman's Light took me twenty years to write. I started way back in the mid-1990s. I had no idea how to write a novel, and I had to learn along the way. Plus, I had to learn how to run a steam locomotive. <laughs> so to run a steam loco- locomotive, you got to find a steam locomotive. <laughs> there are not too many left in the United States. But I, I did that, and I have some great engine cab pictures. Oh, that's fun. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Mary Higgins Clark, but she was on the show several oh. times before she passed away. And she said that she didn't know anything at all about technology. <laughs> and, and yet technology would pop up in some of her stories. And... I asked her about that. I said, well, how do you write about technology if you don't know anything about technology? And she says, I've got a guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I've had technology in my stories, but it's, you know, I was uh, trained in chemistry and biology and physics and all that. I've been a radiation safety officer. I've done a lot of things in my life. I've been a medical lab tech, a nuclear medicine lab tech, a safety specialist, a drug regulatory specialist, a technical service (laughs) person for radioactive materials. You know, I've done a lot of technical material. I've written... um, I've done technical writing for um, a computer program in hazardous materials management that was written for me. And so uh, that's not a problem. I just dive in and learn it. I figure it out. Because you don't have to know everything about it. You just have to know enough to fake it. (laughs) <laughs> well, how much research goes into um, one of your novels? Um, the Heroes Arise, which was my first novel, um, basically very little research because I made the world up. I had to I had to figure out how to work a grapnel. And so I actually bought a grapnel, you know, one of those things that you throw onto the dock when you bring in your small craft to to pull yourself over to the dock. Um, I I had to learn how to use that. And, oh, I still remember, I I was trying to work on a passage where my 
my crayon is using a grapnel for something. And I thought, what is he going to do? And I, I wanted to go out and try and toss it about outside. My husband said, no, you got better put on a hat, hard hat. You'll kill yourself. <laughs> and so then my publisher called and said, I need that chapter by in the next three hours. And I said, well, that's not going to work then. So I sat down in the middle of the bedroom floor, and I talked to my grapnel. <laughs> I had a conversation with it. Oh, and it answered me in its own way. And I said, I know how to use this thing. And I went and wrote it down so there was just enough wiggle room and fuzzy spots. It didn't have to be every detail. Well, my guest is uh, Laurel Ann Hill, the author of Plague of Flies, um, which uh, takes readers back in time to 1846 in the western section of Mexican Alta, California. Um, it's a uh, young adult fantasy or historical fantasy. And, Laurel, we're almost out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? Yes, I do. And it's got the um, HTTPS, but it has no www in. It just has the HTTPS and the usual colon and slash. And then it is laurelannhill.com. L-A-U-R-E-L-A-N-N-E-H-I-L-L.com. Well, Laurel, thanks so much for uh, spending this time with me and the listeners this morning. It's been a real treat. And it's been great to talk with you. Take care and keep up the good work. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Goodbye. That was uh, Laurel Ann Hill. She's the author of Plague, uh, Plague of Flies, Revolt of the Spirits, 1846. She has authored over 30 published short stories, two award-winning young adult novels. Uh, the new book is uh, being called A Young Adult Historical Fantasy that tells the story of a young Mexican girl whose country is in turmoil. We're going to... Uh, take a short break and we'll be back with the uh, final segment of today's edition of the Tom Sumner program. If you're listening to us at WFOV 92.1 LPFM Flint, our Voices Radio is a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. And we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com we have some messages as well, so don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll have uh, more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Old-fashioned radio For a new generation TomSumnerProgram.com the Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner 
Unknown Comics. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershade Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan. Flipflip Technology. My Community College. It's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger, and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zondrick. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Ellen Sherman, Cleveland housewife and mother. Hi, I'm a nuclear physicist and commissioner of consumer affairs. In my spare time, I do needlepoint, read, sculpt, take writing lessons, and brush up on my knowledge of current events. Thursday's my day at the daycare center, and then there's my work with the deaf. But I still have time left over to do all my own baking and practice my backhand, even though I'm on call 24 hours a day as a legal aid. How does Ellen Sherman do it all? She's smart. She takes speed. 
the tiny blue diet pill you don't have to be overweight to need. And then I collect these paper bags, and I have them right here, all folded and everything. In case anyone needs a paper bag, I have Yes, one. Speed. Because I fold them neatly, you know. I don't fold them just any old way. I Why not ask your family doctor for a prescription today? And, and when that runs out, you can ask your neighbor's doctor and your mother's doctor and your college roommate's doctor and your best friend from high school's doctor and your babysitter's doctor. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. The outpatients are out in force tonight, I see. Good. No. I'm sure you're all aware that this week is National Gallbladder Week. And so as... As sort of an educational feature at this point, I thought I would acquaint you with some of the results of my recent researches into the career of the late Dr. Samuel Gall, inventor of the gallbladder, (laughs) which which certainly ranks as one of the more important technological advances since the invention of the joy buzzer and the dribble glass. (laughs) Dr. Gall's faith in his invention was so dramatically vindicated last year, as you no doubt recall, when, for the first time in history, in a nationwide poll, the gallbladder was voted among the top ten organs. <laughs> his, uh, his educational career began, interestingly enough, in agricultural school, where he majored in animal husbandry until they caught him at it one day. <laughs> Whereupon whereupon he switched to the field of medicine, in which field he also won renown as the inventor of gargling, which uh, prior to that time had been practiced only furtively by a remote tribe in the Andes who passed the secret down from father to son as part of their oral tradition. He soon became a specialist specializing in diseases of the rich. (laughs) Was therefore able to retire at an early age. (laughs) To the land we all dream about, sunny Mexico, of course. The last part of which is completely irrelevant, as was the whole thing, I guess, except it's a rather sneaky way of getting into this next type of popular song, which is one of those things about that magic and romantic land that south of the border. When it's fiesta time in Guadalajara Then I long to be back once again in old Mexico 
for today, never giving a thought to tomorrow. To the strumming of guitars in a hundred grubby bars, I would whisper, Te amo. The mariachis would serenade, and they would not shut up till they were paid. We ate, we drank, and we were merry, and we got typhoid and dysentery. But best of all, we went to the Plaza de Toros. Now whenever I start feeling moros, I revive by recalling that scene. And names like Belmonte, Dominguina, and Manolete, if I live to 180, I shall never forget what they mean. For there is surely nothing more beautiful in this world than the sight of a lone man facing single-handedly a half a ton of angry pot roast. Out came the matador who must have been potted or slightly insane, but who looked rather bored. Then the picadors, of course, each one on his horse, I shouted, holy, every time one was gored. I cheered at the banderilleros' display as they stuck the bull in their own clever way, for I hadn't had so much fun since the day my brother's dog, Rover, got run over. Rover was killed by a Pontiac and it was done with such grace and artistry that the witnesses awarded the driver both ears and the tail. But I digress. The moment had come, I swallowed my gum. We knew there'd be blood on the sand pretty soon. Held its breath, hoping that death would brighten an otherwise dull afternoon. At last, the matador did what we wanted him to. He raised his sword, and his aim was true. In that moment of truth, I suddenly knew that someone had stolen my wallet. <laughs> the time in Akron, Ohio, but it's back to old Guadalajara, I'm longing to go, far away from the strikes of the AF of L and CIO, how I wish I could get back to the land of the wetback and forget the Alamo. dance on a dance floor and the Spaniards they dance on a table and the Russians they dance on a saber but the Mexicans dance on their hats 
Oh, they dance on hot coals in Calcutta. In Wisconsin, they dance on fresh butter, which they squeeze from one cow or another. Yes, the Mexicans dance on their hats. There are Mexicans dancing on derbies. There are Mexicans dancing on caps. They just throw their fedoras wherever the floor is and start doing horrors and taps. They won't quit. They go on. It's a Mexican custom to take hats and bust them by doing a dance thereupon. Oh, the reason they shot Pancho Villa was he danced on his mother's mantilla. And the message did not reach Garcia. He was out somewhere dancing on hats. There's a fellow in West Acapulco, the most elegant man you could meet. He does sambas on Hamburgs to tunes of Sig Rombergs and sometimes the Nutcracker Sweet. So take care, so beware, or they'll put castanets on and ruin your Stetson cause they all think they're Fred Astaire. If you're ever in Mexico proper and you're wearing a straw hat or topper, when the band starts to play, call a copper. Cause by now you should know that they'll grab your chapeau and they'll stomp till it's flat and that's that. That's what Mexicans do on your hat. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program. I want to say thanks to all of my guests this last hour. Laurel Ann Hill, author, uh, uh, an award-winning young adult author, and uh, talking about her new book, Plague of Flies, Revolt of the Spirits, 1846. And uh, before that, we talked about National School Week with the president of National School Choice Week, Andrew Campanella. And we started out uh, in the uh, first part of the show with Lynn Barrett, author of Crazy, Reclaiming Life from the Shadow of Traumatic Memory, talking about disassociative identity disorder. Much more interesting conversation than you might, uh, <laughs> might initially expect. We used to call it multiple personality disorder, but now it's uh, dissociative identity disorder. Anyway... Uh, Thanks again to Lynn Barrett for starting the show off today. And um, that's smoking George Winters tickling the ivories there. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. But I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And I hope that you will be too. In the meantime, have a great day and good night, everybody. program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. 
Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.